Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Church, we are in John chapter 19 this morning. John chapter 19. We're in uh, part four of a series called His Last Days. We've been studying the last four chapters of John as we lead up to Easter and to really beyond. But part one, you'll recall, Peter's denial of Christ showed us how easy it is for us to drift toward unfaithfulness. Part two, we discovered that listening to Jesus' voice connects us to the truth. And then last week in part three, we saw that Jesus' crown of thorns represents the painful curse of our sin. Now, it comes as no surprise to, well, hardly any of us, that we live in rapidly changing times. I mean, within my lifetime, we went from television shows requiring married couples to sleep in separate beds, uh, I Love Lucy, uh, Dick Van Dyke Show, to virtually no limit of explicit material available on your living room TV in one election cycle. A presidential candidate went from saying in 2008, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. I'm not in favor of gay marriage. To by the end of his two terms, eight years later, saying his views had evolved. Of course, you recall in 2015, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, and he celebrated the court's ruling in 2015 by having the White House lit up in rainbow-colored lights. That's quite a turnaround from just seven years before. Changes are happening so rapidly in our culture that our collective heads are no longer spinning. Man, they have spun completely off. You know what I'm saying? So, morally suspect things that people begged us to tolerate in the, in the late 20th century, we are now being demanded to celebrate in the 21st century. That's how rapidly things change. Well, there's an old saying that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, you're going to note, as we read our text from John chapter 19 today, a conspicuous absence. Where are the disciples? Well, according to prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus had told them at the Last Supper, tonight... All of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that's exactly what had happened. And yet we still have to ask why. Why didn't the disciples go and gather all those people who just a few days before on Palm Sunday during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus, the ones who laid down those palm branches, why didn't you gather those people together? Or, or why didn't you call the 5,000 who had eaten the multiplied loaves and fishes that Jesus had provided? Couldn't they find strength in numbers? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. What we do know is that the text today forces us to, to do some self-examination. It demands that, that we ask if we're seeing our society drift away because good people, Christian people, 
Don't rise up to do something good instead of just doing nothing. And it forces us to consider just how, how fickle people can be, how easily swayed we are. Well, during Jesus' last week, he went from hearing cries of, hail him, to nail him. I mean, only a few days after voice had cried, uh, voices had cried, crown him, they're, they're, they're crying, crucify him. And so here's the big idea I want you to get from today's message, that when you listen to the crowd, yeah, it can sway you into thinking that wrong is right. So be so anchored in Christ that you sway the crowd to the truth. You'll find the human tendency, our tendency, to be so easily swayed by the mob is really personified by the person of Pontius Pilate and his treatment of Jesus in this text. Well, in our text today, we're going to find that Pilate's decisions regarding Jesus are really being swayed by four individual things. The first one is this. Pilate was swayed by perversion. What do I mean by that? A perversion of the Old Testament law. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And when the chief priests in the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, there's something really interesting, theologically speaking, something really interesting that happens here in verse 5 and also in verse 14. You see, without even realizing it, Pilate makes two key declarations about Jesus, about his nature. He says in verse 5, here is the man. And in verse 14, he says, here is your king. And so unintentionally and probably full of sarcasm, Pilate has declared one of those amazing and mysterious theological truths about Jesus, that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. He's king, eternal. Now, why is that significant to you and me? Well, because Jesus had this dual nature, that he was fully God and fully man, that he can serve as the perfect mediator between God and humankind. As fully God, he possesses the divine authority to redeem humanity from sin, to reconcile us to God, to, to conquer death. And as fully man, he identifies with our struggles. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, just as the writer of Hebrews said in that passage that we read just a few moments ago. Now, as we learned from last week's study, this declaration, here is the man, was really intended to calm a bloodthirsty crowd who were intent on having Pilate crucify a man whom he had said three times, I find no fault in him. Yeah, but that didn't work. The, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious officials, demanded crucifixion for no good reason that Pilate could determine. Now, he obviously realized that the Sanhedrin couldn't execute the sentence themselves. And so his apparent committing of Jesus back to them was really an act of frustration, maybe even sarcasm. Take him and crucify him yourselves, he says in verse 6. 
Now, imagine with me, if you will, for just a moment, a tall, dark, imposing statue standing on the steps of the federal courthouse on State Line Avenue. This statue serves as an emblem of justice that's tarnished by greed and ambition. The name, Mr. Ruthless Lawbender. He's a man who has looked how, he's learned how to skillfully exploit every loophole in the legal system in pursuit of his own diabolical agenda. And with a wicked smile, with a glint in his eye, Mr. Lawbender confidently flaunts his ill-gotten gains obtained through manipulation of laws and regulations. And behind him, a trail of desperate lives serves as a stark reminder of the villain's dark deeds, showcasing the devastating effects of using the law for one's own selfish means. Well, Mr. Ruthless Lawbender's legacy offers a cautionary tale on the dangers of unchecked power. Now here's the point I'm actually getting to. The Jewish Sanhedrin, they were icons of legal manipulation. They were a whole council comprised of ruthless lawbenders who have now made a, a key change in their tactics with Pilate. These very legalistic religious types came at Pilate with a very legalistic response. See, according to the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Okay, so what is blasphemy? Well, that's very simply an act or an expression that slanders or disrespects God. So here's the Sanhedrin these legal manipulators, they're appealing to the governor, saying that their legal system demanded that anyone who claimed to be the Son of God had blasphemed and was worthy of death. But you see, Jesus never actually made himself the Son of God, as they claim in verse 7, because Jesus always was, is, and will be the eternal Son of God. And blasphemy? Come on. When had Jesus ever slandered God? I mean, how can someone who is fully God profane God? Will God slander himself? Of course not. You and I know that. We know that the charge is ridiculous. But like that twisted crown of thorns we talked about last week that were, that were pressed down onto Jesus' head, the religious leaders had twisted the law to their advantage. They had perverted the law. They were following some laws. They were ignoring other laws. And so doing, it allowed them to be judge and jury and, and with Pilate's help, executioner. You know, before those, those crowds that had gathered were even aware of this illegal kangaroo court that had transpired just a few hours before in the dark of night. And so here we see Pilate beginning to be swayed by this perversion of the Old Testament law, but there's something else he was swayed by. Pilate was swayed by power. Look at verses 8 through 11. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, 
do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority at all over me, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Now, when our four kids were much younger, they loved reading the Percy Jackson series. It's a collection of books for young readers that weave together tales of, of characters from Greek mythology who interact with our world, most specifically with a teen named Percy, short for Perseus. And it's fun, fascinating, entertaining stuff, but of course you and I know that these characters are fictional. Yeah, Pilate didn't know that. Pilate believed in the Greco-Roman gods. And Pilate is starting to get really uncomfortable. See, one thing that made Pilate's situation more precarious was perceived power. See, Pilate was very likely uh, more afraid when he heard that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Now, that's a claim that happened a lot when you're talking about Roman and Greek mythology, something that Pilate took very seriously, something certainly much more credible to him than the claims of this Jewish religion. And so this anxious question of, where are you from? In verse nine implies that Pilate was truly afraid. Afraid Jesus was like those, those supernatural stories from, from Pilate's childhood. Neither uh, uh, a man nor a king of the Jews, but one of those gods come down from heaven. Or more specifically, in Pilate's case, from Mount Olympus. Undoubtedly, Pilate had heard about the miracles, about Jesus' wisdom, the healings, the casting out of evil spirits, all this stuff that Jesus of Nazareth was doing. And so, was it actually possible that this frail, bloodied, beaten man's power might be greater than the Jews, than Pilate's power, than Caesar's power, even the, the power of Rome itself? See, for Pilate, everything revolved around power who had it, who didn't have it, but was clamoring to get it. And with Jesus' silence, one of the only options left to the Roman governor was to flex and to, to boast of his authority over Jesus. Oh, but Jesus wasn't having any of it. Jesus wasn't like those others who'd, who'd come before Pilate begging to be released, pleading not to be chastised, crying out not to be executed. In fact, Jesus' silent response to Pilate showed that in Jesus' mind, there was a power greater than Rome, greater than the sword, greater than the cross, greater than even death itself, and that power would be on full display come Sunday. Now, there's not a clear answer to this question, but ponder this. Who was the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate? Pilate said that this one was guilty of a greater sin in verse 11. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase the theological rabbit for, for just a second, just a tiny one. I'm gonna chase a tiny rabbit because I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. The implication, well, at least the, the inferral for us might be that, that sin 
has different degrees. In God's eye, when it comes to our eternal standing with him, sin has no degree. When it comes to your standing with God in eternity, there are no such things as big sins and little sins. In fact, that's a very Roman Catholic view, the idea that lesser venial sins will send you to purgatory, but the mortal sins will send you to hell. That's not biblical. Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, meaning eternal death. Separation from God in hell. The wages of sin, any sin. You see, any sin will send you to hell. So I don't want you to misunderstand what he's saying there. Now, we, we do need to understand this. There are differing degrees of consequence for sin in this life, this side of heaven. I mean, think about it. The kid who gets caught stealing five bucks from his mom's purse, yeah, the consequences for, for his actions are radically different than the consequences for a husband or wife who cheats on their spouse. So there's different degrees of conf, uh, consequence, but, but get this. There are different degrees of responsibility for sin. Different degrees of guilt. That's what he's talking about here. But understand this, guilt is still guilt. So who was this one that he's talking about? The one who handed me over to you, that could refer to Caiaphas, the high priest, Judas, the betrayer. It could refer to the entire Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. It might even refer to the Jewish people in general. But the thought here is that the Jews should have known better. I mean, they had the scriptures that predicted the coming of the Messiah. They should have recognized him when he came. But they rejected him. And even now, they're crying out for his blood. And so what this verse does teach us is that there are degrees of responsibility for sin, degrees of guilt. Pilate was guilty, but Caiaphas and Judas and all the wicked Jews were even more guilty in this situation. But you see, for us, this isn't the degree of guilt that we need to be concerned with. The greatest guilt in my world, that's not due to Pilate's sin. It's not due to her sin. It's not due to his sin. Greatest guilt in the world is not their sin. You see, folks, there is no greater guilt than the guilt for my sin. I can't do a thing about your sin or the sins of Pilate or the sins of Judas or the Sanhedrin. It was my sin that put Christ on the cross. And you know what? That sin comes all too easily for people who are swayed by power like Pilate was. Now, here's something else that Pilate was swayed by. Pilate was swayed by popularity. Look at verses 12 and 13. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now the Sanhedrin, they had done a very shrewd thing. 
They began to stack the proverbial deck in their favor. That crowd that had assembled early that morning was very likely brought in by these religious leaders. Maybe, just maybe, even paid by them to make it seem as though everyone in Jerusalem was wanting Jesus to be crucified. Because they knew there's power in numbers. And so they and the mob repeatedly and consistently shouted that Jesus should be crucified. Now, I think there's another dynamic at play here as well. There's an old saying that you repeat a lie often enough and it becomes the truth. Now, the person who actually said that was Joseph Goebbels, who was chancellor of Germany under Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. So however despicable Goebbels was, or how sinister this might sound, in a lot of cases it is reality. If a lie is repeated often enough and loud enough, it will be believed by a lot of people. Albeit gullible, easily impressionable people, but it will be believed. In fact, this is one of the core doctrines of propaganda. And so here we've got the Jewish religious leaders. They're, they're calling for blood. They shout it long. They shout it loud. Jesus is guilty. And a lot of people jumped on that bandwagon until the popular opinion was crucify him. Now, Pilate was under major pressure. I mean, not just from this angry bandwagon mob outside, but from Rome itself, because his job was to keep the peace. Well, there was no peace in Jerusalem. I mean, the city whose very name had peace, Shalom, right there in it. Popular opinion seemed to say that Jesus must die. And as we'll soon see, Pilate caved in to popular opinion. The mob would finally tip the balance for Pilate to pronounce an innocent man's death. Christians, most of you know this, but I'm telling you anyway. There are going to be a lot of occasions in life when you are going to be tempted to go along with the crowd. Don't listen to the crowd. Listen to Jesus. Because the crowd can often sway you into thinking that wrong is right. Now for me, growing up a preacher's kid, it was largely a blessing. I had a mom and dad who modeled Jesus Christ for me. They showed me what true Christian leadership was in the home by providing me what I needed, not what I wanted, <laughs> but they knew what I needed. But you know what? I didn't always do a good job of imitating their godly example. You see, I discovered in high school not everyone thinks it's cool to be a preacher's kid. You didn't always get invited to parties. Girls didn't always take you seriously. And so in a desire for popularity, I sometimes compromised. 
I mean, in the, in the locker room before basketball practice, man, it was way too easy for me to just to tell crude jokes, talk dirty with the guys, instead of being Jesus to my teammates, to, to feed the flesh instead of feeding the spirit, to glorify compromise instead of glorifying God. And as a result, the high school version of me was not exactly a world changer. Shoot, I wasn't even a room changer. Yeah, I was a standout student, scholarship recipient, lead in the school play, president of the choir, January boy of the month, whoopity-doo! I was not a soul winner. And you know why? Because like Pilate, I was swayed by popularity. Now, there's a fourth thing. There's something else that we, like Pilate, can be swayed by. We find that Pilate was swayed by politics. Look at verses 14 through 16. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. When Pilate emerged that final time, he proclaimed, here is your king. Now, ironically, what Pilate meant sarcastically was actually eternally true. Jesus is king. Oh, but the chief priest responded, oh, Jesus isn't our king. Caesar's our only king. Well, the irony of the blasphemy of that statement surely wasn't lost on Pilate. You see, the Sanhedrin had earlier accused Jesus of blasphemy. He was worthy of death because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, remember, blasphemy is an expression that defames God, that treats him disrespectfully. And look at what they're doing here. These religious leaders are now saying, we have no king but Caesar. What happened to their allegiance to the one true God? The one whose bidding they claim to be doing. You know, the God who was supposedly blasphemed by Jesus? Now all of a sudden, Caesar is their only allegiance? Caesar over God? Who are the blasphemers now? Oh, the, the hypocrisy that they stooped to in order to sway Pilate. But you know what? It was all just political maneuvering. They had compromised their own beliefs. They had blasphemed God in order to sway Pilate by making God a lesser authority. Now, speaking of politics, if you've ever studied Baptist history, then you know that Baptists have been historically tied to separation of church and state. In fact, that, that very term, church and state, comes from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to an association of 26 churches in Connecticut and New York called the Danbury Baptists. And in that letter, he was assuring them that the legislature would not prohibit 
the free exercise of their faith. The government would not tell them who to worship and how. Now, contrary to popular opinion, that did not mean that church people should not have an influence in politics, especially in a democratic republic like ours that's of the people, by the people, for the people. I will say this, though. If you're really looking to government to solve all of society's ills and to return us to some sort of state of Christian utopia, yeah, that's not going to happen. In fact, the only thing that's really going to heal our sin-sick culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see a genuine revival in this country. But Jesus does call all of us to be the salt of the earth, to be light to our nation and to the world. And so involvement in government is one of the many ways that we can do that. Of course, to fulfill God's redemption plan, it was always going to be necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. But let's just speak hypothetically for a minute. What if, what if Christ's followers had, had shown up in greater numbers to lobby for his release? What if the disciples had come to Pilate's palace and provided a political voice in opposition to the crucify him crowd? But what happened? Yeah, we know what happened. Pilate caved. Verse 16 says, then he handed him over to be crucified. Other gospel accounts say that Pilate actually publicly washed his hands to say, hey, this isn't on me. Jesus' blood is not on my hands. He wouldn't take responsibility. Of course, we know how the story goes from here. And those of us who are familiar with the gospel, we know that the Christ child that we celebrate at Christmas time was born to die 33 years later. In the mind of God, before the foundation of the world, Jesus had been preordained to be crucified. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1. But you know what? It wasn't because Pilate caved into the pressure. Jesus was crucified because we have all caved in to sin. When you listen to the crowd, it can sway you into thinking that wrong is right. So be so anchored in Christ that you sway the crowd to the truth. All right, church, what are the implications and the applications with this text that we've studied today? Well, you know, there's one thing about society that sadly remains constant. We see it in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. It says, woe, woe meaning suffering. Suffering to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves to be clever. So what about us, church? like those disciples that abandoned Jesus at Gethsemane. Is it our tendency to scatter? Are we afraid to speak his name? 
like Pilate? Have, have we been swayed? Have we denied Christ? Have we compromised our witness by being swayed by maybe by the twisting of rules? Have we substituted bitter for sweet? Been swayed by power or, or popularity or, or even politics? Church, let's not count ourselves among those who call evil good and darkness light. Let's not listen to the mob, the mob in the classroom, the mob in the workplace, the mob on social media, TikTok, YouTube. Let's not listen to the mob. Instead of letting ourselves be influenced by the world, let's be the ones who are doing the influencing. Let's be world changers. Now, if that's what we're committed to doing, to, to being, how can we be instruments for the good in the future? How can we sway people to the truth? Well, I can't give you a comprehensive 12-step plan, but let me give you a few starters, all right? I'm gonna give you four key words. The first key word is position. Position yourself firmly on the Word of God and determine to live your life by its truth. Psalm chapter 1 says that the happy man is the one whose delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it both day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season. So position yourself in the Word and plant yourself in Jesus Christ and stay there. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. So position. Here's the second key word. Ponder. What do I mean? Ponder, meditate, consider, pray about ways that you can use your influence to be an instrument of godliness and change. In your home, at work, at school, in this church body, in the community. Do some homework. Research some ways that you can make a difference. And then pray about it. Pray it and ask God to reveal to you how he can best use you. Pray, ponder, plan. And as you carry out your plan to sway people to the truth, be sure you lead by example. So we position, we ponder. Here's the third key word, peace. If you are going to be an influencer, if you're going to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you, you do it with gentleness and respect, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. You see, it's your godly character that is going to earn you the right to speak into people's lives. Being an influencer requires speaking the truth in love. But how can you speak the truth in, in love in an age of bitter disagreement? Determined to be a peacemaker, not a crowd follower. There, there's a prayer, and a lot of you have heard it before. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. 
Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. And then here's the fourth key word. Proclaim. Psalm 107.2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Make a big deal out of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't be ashamed to speak his name. Don't be afraid to say to the world, here is my king. Whether you're willing to concede that or not, he is king, and he always will be king. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.